Employment discrimination is illegal and takes many forms. Religion. Race. Workers' compensation claims. Gender. Age. Disability. If you believe your employer has illegally fired or retaliated against you, contact us. Protecting your employment rights. Why we do what we do. The Law Offices of Stephen New. And can from day one here in ECW, from day stinking one, Taz, the franchise, the two dominant players, you will not be the World Heavyweight Champion, Taz. It is the belt that I made, and I ain't giving it up. 35 years old at the peak of my career, and I ain't about to give it up just yet, Taz. Go seeking someplace else. Think about stretching Sabu or slamming somebody else on their head. Because tonight, pal, I play games with you all night long. Bitch, you're mine. I'm the World Heavyweight Champion here. I will remain the World Heavyweight Champion here. It's my belt. It's my belt. It's my belt. Ain't that right? Yeah, sure, you're right. Of course you're right. This is it tonight, man. Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Franchisees! We are back right here on my favorite podcast and yours. And it's a beautiful day because we're only five days away. Now, I don't know when you're going to listen to this, but today is the 10th in my world, and we are only five days away from flying with the franchise, and we're going to Miami, baby. What is up, Shane Douglas? You were on the line. Talk to me. Yeah, look, I'm getting I'm really excited about doing this. First of all, I found out that instead of Pittsburgh International, it's going to be an airport much closer to my house, much smaller, not having to fight the TSA lines and everything like that. But also, honestly, just really, really excited to get to meet our contest winners. Uh, hey, you know, uh, as everybody's known to follow me in my career, I'm thrilled that anybody even knows who the hell I am or took the time to follow my career. And so that we had so many fans for all of them that took all their clues and everything and got all their attempts in to try to win. You know, now we've got to boil down to the two winners. I'm really looking forward to meeting them. And I'm really looking forward to going to this AEW show because as anybody that knows me, any kid in the business will tell you that's asked me, hey, can we watch my match and give me feedback? And I always preface it by saying, I sure do, but just understand I don't sugarcoat stuff because nobody ever did for me, and and I'm glad they didn't. I wanted to learn my craft. So I hope that our contest winners, and I'm sure being franchisees, they do. I'm going to give credit where credit's due when I watch it, and I'm also going to criticism where criticism is due for the show. And hopefully at the end of this, our contest winners will be able to understand what I'm saying. You know, what does a, a, a close to 40-year veteran in the business, what do I see when I'm looking at a product? And to be honest with you, honest to God on my kids, on my mother and father's grave, I hope to go down to this show in Miami and get blown away by what we watch. But if we don't, we're going to have at least two franchisees that have a world champion and a franchise's point of view on what exactly was wrong with that product. 
Well, not only then, but the next week, I mean, right right after we get back from the show, we're going to be recording next week's episode, which is going to be all about AEW Bash at the Beach. So just because you aren't there doesn't mean you aren't going to get the opinion of the franchise for AEW, uh, because we're going to do it on the show. So you will definitely hear about exactly what Shane Douglas thinks of what he's seen at AEW Bash at the Beach, and it is looking to be a pretty awesome night. I, I don't know. I'm sure you haven't been watching watching AEW but I have and I'm super excited about what we're going to see. Well, the, the you know the numbers have have really shoved back after that two or three or four weeks whatever it was of NXT uh pulling the ratings uh going ahead in the ratings. AEW has really flexed its muscles and convincingly for the last 3 weeks kicked the shit out of NXT. Now, to be fair to NXT, their shows have been taped and AEW was still live, so that does factor into it. But, the, you know, the, this gets, you know, when you get into the weeds, and I know this might bore some people, it's not just the TV views, it's also the TV views plus the DVR views, because today with all this technology, so many people DVR, right? But AEW has taken a commanding lead, and I would argue that that now puts them in a position that if they begin to get that train back on the tracks... And giving the fans, because remember, we're not arguing about the millennial fans or, you know, some 15 or 20 year old kid out there. We're talking about the product en masse and the business en masse. So we've got, you know, without, again, boring the people, you know, we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 48 to 50 million fans that used to watch wrestling religiously that have walked away. And as I've long argued, for somebody to be successful, especially if they ever plan on competing head-to-head with Vince, it is imperative, critical, crucial that they pull some percentage of those fans that have walked away back. You're 37, 38, I'm 28, 29. So like between our our generations, you know, there's tens of millions of our peers that have stopped watching. Somebody's got to bring them back to the full, back to the table, right? News alert, backflips ain't going to do it, and punches and kicks to the face ain't going to do it, and a crazy bump on the apron here and there ain't going to do it. I asked Dominic Danucci, 80, God bless his heart, 89 years old at the end of January, the end of this month, uh, and, and in better shape than all of us. Uh, but I asked him, because he, he, you know, he watches pretty religiously, and I asked him, when's the last time you saw a wrist lock, a chin lock, a head lock, a hammer lock reversal, a drop toe hold? And he looked at me and he thought for a second, he goes, never. You know, that, that ain't the right answer. You know, that's not what fans that we're talking about that have left that want to come back. And so this is just a precipice as to what we're going to, a preface, I should say, as to what we're going to be getting into next weekend again. That's, that's the caveat, but I am hoping to get my socks blown off. I'm hoping to be as excited as you are after we get the chance to watch Bash at the Beach. You know what's really interesting, and I I know we're going to ask you a whole bunch of questions today, but I got the same question over and over and over for the new questions that were being sent in, and you know what they were all about? What's that? They were all about whether you are the leader of the Dark Order. Everyone wants to- What's the Dark What's the, What's the dark order? <laughs> right. What's the dark order? Everybody wants to know, you know, who the, the big story in AEW right now is who is the leader of the dark order? Nobody knows who the leader of the dark order is, and they're going to reveal that soon. And a lot of people are putting puzzle pieces together thinking that the reason why we did this contest and the reason why you're going mm. is because you are the leader of the dark order. 
you know, I, I tried to tell them that you weren't, but uh, but some well, people do think here's, you are. Here's a question. Here's a question. If I were the kayfabe leader of the Dark Order, do you think I would tell you? I don't think you would. I don't think you would. <laughs> I don't even think you'd tell me. So. No, I, I certainly wouldn't. Uh, but, you know, newsflash, I am not the leader of the Dark Order. But, you know, it, it, again, I, 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 Dominic Danucci went with me to my son's basketball game last night. And as we were watching the game, you know, we're just sitting there bullshitting. And I said to him, God, because like, he was talking about like how he watched and, you know, how he's really turned off by what he saw. And I, I said, you know, Dominic, I've been watching wrestling since I was six years old. I can watch great wrestling. I wouldn't say 24 hours a day, but I can watch it pretty consistently probably every night. I don't watch much television as it is, but I can watch great wrestling pretty much most of those nights, uh, if, you know, if it was there. And I, as try as I might, I can, I, you know, I'll watch, you know, for these podcasts that I do and, you know, talking to fans. You know, I really do, in my heart of hearts, Every time I watch one of these shows, whether it's NWA, MLW, NXT, AEW, I'm like, there's a little bit of a knot in my gut. So I'm hoping I get it right. I'm going to blow it with that athleticism, blow the fucking roof off the place. And yet I'm disappointed every time I watch. You know, I, I know, like in AEW's case, Dean Malenko backstage, Double A backstage, Billy Gunn backstage, Jerry Lynn backstage. There's certainly a wealth of experience and knowledge in that dressing room. Why am I not seeing any Jerry Lynn isms, any Arn Anderson isms, any Billy Gunn isms, any Dean Malenko isms? Why am I not seeing that acumen in what I'm watching? And I and I go back. It's been a little while. I go back to being that kid in the dressing room, whether I was working with a Pez Watley or uh, a Dick Slater or a Dick Murdoch. And they told me what to do. I didn't ask them why or, hey, you know, I got a better idea. I did what the fuck they told me to do because, I, A, I knew I didn't know what the fuck I was doing or talking about. And, B, I knew they did. And so if I want them to teach me, why not follow what they're telling me? And, and so I'm, I'm sort of lost in how, you know, when you have guys like Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson and all the guys that I just mentioned in that dressing room, Jerry Lynn, who I think is like one of the most unsung heroes of our business. I think he's a phenomenal worker. Well, I don't think I know he's a phenomenal worker. And he's always impressed me with his work ethic and what he could do in the ring. Why am I not seeing any of them and rubbed off onto the younger talent? You'd have to be a goddamn fool to listen to an Arn Anderson or a Jerry Lynn or a Billy Gunn or a Tully Blanchard or a Dean Malenko and say, yeah, I'm going to do it my own way. You'd have to be a fool. That's true. You definitely would have to be a fool. Um, we, I've got a pile of questions here that were sent in by the Let's franchisees, and I think that it's time to kick it off and go right into them. There's some really good questions today. I'm, I'm kind of interested. I mean, normally when we get the questions, there are a bunch of them I already know the answer to, so it's not as as you know fun for me as it is for the franchisees today there's all kinds of questions that i don't know what you're going to say to so i'm pretty excited about it let's uh let's get it rolling if you're good with that well well before we get into it let me just say and this ain't blowing smoke up your ass but you you know more about the franchise character than probably anybody that i know except me um 
So if these, if these questions are that difficult, I might have to really think about these ones. But I, I love getting questions that I haven't answered 10,000 times already. So let's get it rolling. Well, a lot of them are opinion questions, and that's that's where where it wouldn't you know wouldn't be all about me knowing about the franchise. It's just a, your opinion on things that maybe I've just never asked you. You know, hey, what's your opinion on this? But let's get it started. Well, are you ready? Well, before we start, as anybody knows, I never have any opinions. I'm the most unopinionated guy on the planet. So oh, yeah, that's that's a hundred percent true. <laughs> all right, click the light on. It's time to interrogate the franchise. Part three. Here we go. Starting off with Paul. Paul from Facebook wants to know, what was the best advice you were ever given in wrestling and who gave it to you? Oh, my God. I got so many pieces. You know, I, I was blessed, as anybody's ever heard me talk about this. Uh, you know, I, I, I got a chance to rub elbows with and learn and work with some pretty incredible talent. But Dominic Danucci, very if it wasn't the first day, it was probably the first weekend or with, certainly within the first month, told us and then drilled this home pretty much every workout. Keep your mouth shut and your eyes and ears open. And that gets back to what I said a second ago about all the AEW, you know, acumen and talent and experiences in the dressing room. But Bruno San Martino gave me a piece of advice. Uh, uh, God, again, first six months I was training. He used to stop by Dominic's school periodically. As a kid growing up and going to wrestling at the Pittsburgh Civic Arena, excuse me, uh, I would watch, half watch the, the ring, and then I'd half watch because in the back, like where the Penguins would come out, they had this really high, like, arched, area where you know the, the, the penguins would skate out when they were coming to play hockey and you'd occasionally see a wrestler here or there sticking his head out there watching wrestling i never once in all the years as a kid going to the pittsburgh civic arena ever saw bruno san martino's face there and so as a kid you know you start to think well he's the world champion he must have a monitor in his dressing room and he's watching from there you know probably has his feet propped up right now so when I met Bruno, you know, of course, after I marked out like a total fucking mark, and you know, I still mark out for Bruno San Martino, I asked him, you know, I said, hey, when you were in the Civic Arena, did you have a monitor in your dressing room? Because I never saw you watching, like, you know, I see Dominic out there, I see Baron Cicluna, I see Chief Chase Trombo, Billy Graham, Jumping Johnny DeFazio, hey, Stash Calhoun, but I never saw you. He said, no, no monitor in the dressing room. I said, well, weren't, weren't you interested in watching what was going on before your match? He said, well, of course I was. He said, but, and then, then he gave me the piece of advice. He said, always remember, kid, the fans will pay to see you if you're good once. In other words, they don't want to see how many times. Now apply that from one of the most decorated champions the business has ever had. Holds numerous records. Uh, how many times when you used to watch Nitro or Raw or any of these shows today do you see, we'll use my name, Shane Douglas in segment one, cutting a promo open in the show. And then segment three comes back out and does, and then maybe segment four or five, he's doing color commentary. And then five or six, he's doing a run, and then seven or eight, he's going to match. So you've seen Shane Douglas four, five, six times in tonight's episode. Bruno San Martino understood. If I go out there and do anything before my match is the main event, even if it's 1%, which is going to be more than that, but even if it's 1%, that's 1% less pop I get as the main event. You know, so those two pieces of advice, but again, I could, I could write a book about the advice that I was given from some legitimate, honest-to-God legends and Hall of Famers and icons and all the rest. You know, it was a great career, and I'm blessed to have had it. You could probably write a coffee table book full of advice. <laughs> yeah, as long as, as long as it's got pictures of me with, with my beautiful quaff of hair, we'll, we're good. 
<laughs> All right, so Jeremy from Twitter has a question. In the name game episode, you listed every name given as a friend. Can you give us a list of three enemies and without mentioning Ric Flair or Vince McMahon? <laughs> you know, I've, re- I've gotten to the point where, uh, you know, I've, you know, I- you never forget it, right? When somebody stabs you in the back or screws you. But I've gotten past the point of the heat of that stuff. You know, I would say that at one point, there was probably a point when Scott Hall, I would have called an enemy. But I just saw Scott this past weekend in Spartanburg, which, by the way, still has, this is unbelievable to me even saying it now, still has in the bowels of the building the NWA ring that was packed away in 1986. They still have it. Uh, wow. It's never been touched. You're, nobody's allowed to move it. Several people have tried to buy, including uh, allegedly, from what I was told by building personnel, uh, Jim or David Crockett, they couldn't remember which, tried to buy it so they could donate it to the NWA uh, Museum. And they wouldn't even, I'm thinking to myself, you know, you got this old ring sitting here that's been sitting here for, what, 40 some odd years, 43, 44 years, or or 34 uh, years, 34, 35 years. And nobody has touched it, and they won't sell it. Like, how many building managers that has the Spartanburg Civic Center had in that time? And like, I'm sure they could think of something better to use that space for. But anyway, you know, back to the question from Jerry. Great question. Uh, you know, I, I've really gotten to the point where I, I let go of a lot of that stuff because, you know, I, somebody told me I, I can't remember exactly. You know, I think I'm. I want to say Terry Funk, but it might have been somebody else said. You know, holding on to that anger is gonna you know, it eats you up and it, you know, does more damage to you and all that kind of stuff. First thing Scott Hall and I said, said to each other when we saw each other was, hey, happy new year, man. Have a healthy year. You know, so I, I've really gotten past that point. Now, there's still people I wouldn't trust in the business and never would. Uh, and Vince McMahon certainly tops that list. Rick Flair tops that list. Well, they can't um, be on this list, though. Scott, but, you know, so Scott I, I Hall, as who far else? as enemies go, no, I, I don't have any enemies other than people that have heat with me, you know, because it, it's just not worth it to me at this stage of my life to be harboring that kind of ill will towards anybody. But you don't have two names you can throw on this list for Jeremy? Well, uh, no, not really. I don't. Uh, you know, I, I've reached a stage where I, I really want to enjoy when I go to work and I, I don't want to go into work and be full of pain. I, I went through a lot of years of my career where I was filled with that piss and vinegar. You know, it might be nice to smack Sean around a little bit, but uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> I'd be lying if I said otherwise, but you know, I'd say, you know, no, really. I, 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 I you know, to me, the, the important stuff in life now is that I got two healthy boys, two young men that are impressive. And Dominic Tanucci said something to me last week that you as a father will certainly get any father out there listening. You know, we weren't even talking about the kids. We were just bullshitting. And he, he said, you know, I, I just want to tell you, you know, you got two very nice boys there for, for kids you're very respectful they look you in the eye when they talk to you nice boys to be around and i thought man that's as far as i'm concerned that's about the coolest thing that somebody could tell a father yeah it's, it means you succeeded incredible so you know some, something's going right and there's a lot of stuff we pissed by, especially today right with as insane as the world is uh, my kids are doing well they're healthy life could be a whole lot shittier and i'm blessed that it's not all right well eli from gmail wants to know where did the name shane douglas come from it's a great question i've talked about this you know throughout my past uh when i first went to the uwf eddie gilbert i got there on a friday afternoon and eddie told me we get into town stop by the office so as i got out of the car in the you know underground parking under the 
beautiful office building. It looks like the Arc de Triomphe in France. And uh, go up to as I'm getting on the elevator, Sting, who I'd never met, and his wife Sue at that time were getting on the elevator. So I introduced myself, get up to the floor, and go back to Eddie's office. And Eddie said, uh, you know, "We got really big plans for you. Uh, I got, but I got to ask you: Do you want to use a stage name or your real name?" Well, you know, I was a young, dumb kid. I didn't know that. I said, "What's the difference?" And he said, well, the difference is if you use a real name, anybody can call the hotel because the fans all know the, the hotels we stay at and say, hey, ring me through to Troy Martin's room because this is before the Internet, right? And so people didn't know Shane Douglas was Troy Martin and vice versa. And uh, when he told me that, I said, oh, no, 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 definitely a stage name then because I, I like my privacy. And he said, well, I'm thinking either Shane or Cody. So I said immediately, I said, I, I like Shane better than Cody. So we sat there, me and Eddie, who was married to Missy Eyed at the time, the three of us sat there trying to work every incarnation of Shane with my real name. Troy Shane, Shane Martin, Shane Troy Martin. We were just bouncing it, and nothing sounded right. Missy had gone into the kitchen to, to make lemonade. You know, after, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 minutes, she came walking in. I can still see her carrying a tray of lemonade, and she turned the corner from out of the kitchen, and she said, how about Shane Douglas? And me and Eddie looked at each other and, uh, you know, it sounds like a real name. It sort of flows. Uh, that's where it came from. Shane Douglas. We had Shane from Eddie's, you know, decision of Shane or Cody. Missy Hyatt came up with Douglas and the rest is history. Wow. Missy Hyatt came up with Shane. Du who who would have thought? That's insane. <laughs> All right. Well, Billy from Gmail wants to know when Rick Rude was in ECW as your manager, was it supposed to be a long storyline, or was it just a short one-off? Well, first of all, when, when, when Rick had gotten, you know, Rick and I had known each other for quite a while. I could probably go back and remember the, like, the specifics of time. My guess would be the first time I met him was probably in 90, maybe before that. Uh, but Rick and I always got along very, very well. Uh, he was one intense son of a bitch. I mean, <laughs> like a piano wire. But he and I got along very well. When he first got to ECW, he walked in. He had a long uh, uh, wool overcoat on, like a like a uh, what do they call those? Uh, uh, brain fart. Uh, you know, like like, like an over, like a winter coat that you know the long coats that people wear like suits and things. He had one of those on, and he had a uh, a, a, a motorcycle, full face motorcycle mask, you know, the helmet on, and. He came walking in, and you really couldn't tell, like, how just, you know, Rick was a big guy, like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, but other than that, because of the coat and the helmet, you really couldn't make out any features. We shook hands. He, he didn't speak at all. Paul said, you know, somebody new we're bringing in, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there, I didn't really know until, until they unmasked, you know, until he unmasked. And that was one of the things that Paul did in ECW that I think was brilliant was, you know, he knew invariably that somebody would leak the information it's sort of a lot like the congress right now right if president trump would say something the congress and you know damn right well be in the new york times before the end of the hour the the idea of the storyline of him working with us remember his first line there was when he when he was exposed as to who he was was i'm here for one reason one reason only i'm here to fuck with the franchise well you know paul had built the company pretty much around the franchise character so now you've got this internationally renowned former champion himself it really threw a lot of gasoline on the fire and the fans were interested to see where it goes and at first he was throwing you know he was ostensibly 
throwing people at me to derail me. And then that later became he's building me to be a better champion. You know, there was no, I don't think there was any idea. And I think Paul, and again, I don't know this, there's never a discussion I've had with Paul, but my guess is Paul was smart enough to know that Rick, being that he was straddling the different companies, sort of like the old Brian Pillman model, uh, you know, WCW, WWF, ECW, New Japan, that I don't think Paul really put a lot of trust or faith into the fact that Rick was going to be here long term. As long as he wanted to be there, we could certainly use him. Uh, but I don't think Paul put any long-term thought into it. Every weekend that Rick Rude showed up was a benefit, was a plus for ECW. And I think Paul did most of that on the fly. All right, so Franklin from Facebook wants to ask, did you ever get into a legit fight with a wrestler? And if so, who was it? No. Uh, a couple times had some confrontations, uh, but never uh, a legit fight. Um, you know, look, I'm smart enough to understand what the business is. You know, like, like I talked about before, like when Scott Hall gave the boo-boo face when he found out he had a job to, to, to Dean Douglas. Uh, every time I won, except when I was champion, of course, I wasn't really winning. And I can assure you, every time I lost, I didn't really lose. Uh, wrestling is wrestling. The idea is to give those fans their entertainment dollar and the value for that dollar. I come from a blue-collar family, and I understand you know, what it takes to take a family of four out to probably grab something deep before, buy a couple T-shirts or souvenirs for the kids, the tickets, a couple Coca-Colas and that kind of shit. It becomes a pretty expensive night for a fa the average American family of four. And so, uh, you know, typically, especially where I come from in the business, the, the era I come from, if I had an issue with Brian Reznor, I would come right to Brian Reznor and pull you back into the shower or something. Hey, Brian, A, B, C, D, what the fuck gives? You know, confront it that way. And 99.99999% of the guys, you know, would understand. Okay, well, I'm gonna, we're going to clear the air here and, and take care of this. But the only time I ever, you know, got into a, close to a fight was with Scott Hall uh, when he came to the Kissimmee building. And to me, it was... There was no thought to it. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to make my statement here now that I'm in, in my home. Uh, it was that the building was full of people that had been fucked by people like Scott Hall and the Click. You, know, you had Tracy Smothers there. You had Bam Bam Bigelow. You had Chris and Tammy. And I'm sure others in the building that I can't think of off the top of my head that had been screwed by, uh, by the Click. And I can honestly say, and you can talk to Paul Heyman anytime you want, there was never a time at ECW that I ever went to Paul Heyman and said, hey, fuck this guy, fuck that guy, this girl, that one. I never did that because my belief then and now was if you can put asses in seats, my personal differences with you aside, you're getting hired and should be. So when Scott Hall came walking in that day, I was in the dressing room. And as I remember, I was off injured i think it might have been the elbow injury and i uh, it's been so long ago but i i uh i was in the dressing room and our head of ticket taking uh, you know our, our head usher had come our box office manager she came back and she said you'll never guess who's walking across the parking lot right now and i said who and she says scott hall well i stood right up and started taking my pouch off because this is like within a month or two or three i guess of of you know, really getting fucked in WWF. And Paul Heyman came over and grabbed me and said, you can't hit him. What do you mean I can't hit him? He said, you can't hit him. We have a pay-per-view in a couple of weeks. And if you hit him, you're going to get arrested and won't make the pay-per-view. 
And, and I was so flustered. And I said, well, how about if he swings at me first? He said, well, if he swings at you first, you can take him out. And, you know, so I confronted him walking in. And Bubba and I just talked about this the other night in uh, Spartanburg. As he walked in, he turned around, and, and there I was. And I asked him, you know, I said, I, I said to him, you got a lot of balls walking in here because this, you know, first of all, anybody here kicks your ass. None of us are going to get starved by Vince McMahon because none of us work for Vince McMahon. If any of us kick your ass here, you know, the ECW fans are pretty much going to love it. So now my chore was to try to make him swing, and I couldn't get him to swing. And I said some pretty nasty stuff to the guy. He wouldn't swing. Uh, but I, the, the one thing, there are two things that stick out of my mind, oh, a couple more than that, but. When he walked in, this confrontation took place. The entire building went quiet. Tracy was in the ring with you know, eight or ten of the young guys training. You know, the, 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 the boys of the ECW were splattered around the building. The building went completely silent. You know, the, the building workers, everybody just stopped dead. He, when he saw he wasn't going to get the first base with me, he looked over to Chris and Tammy and said, Hey, Chris and Tammy, how about uh, how are you guys doing? Chris, Chris, Chris uh, Candido something goes, fuck you, Scott. Oh, you fucked me and Tammy too. And Bammer was sitting there sprawled out about the, uh, the bleachers. And, uh, he said, how about you, Scott? Are me and you still boys? And Bam Bam stood up and started pulling his tights up and walking down out of the, the bleachers. And as he did, Scott Hall started backpedaling. Scott walked up and put his hand on his shoulder. He said, you don't have to backpedal for me. I'm not going to kick your ass. He said, the franchise is going to kick your ass. He said, but you, you sure got a lot of balls coming here. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was one of those things, like I said, you know, we've since put that heat behind us, thank God. But, uh, you know, to me, when you fuck with a man's livelihood, when you take food off the table of a man, any real man's going to confront you. And that was exactly what happened to me when I went to WWF from people who I'd previously believed were friends and had spent considerable time with on the road. Now, when we'd come to Pittsburgh in 1990 when I was there, I'd give Sean, Marty, and, and Dustin, I'd give them the keys to my brother's house and tell them, make yourselves at home. You know, to me, a friendship is a friendship. A friendship isn't, well, it's convenient today, but tomorrow it's not, so fuck off. I, just, I, I made that point abundantly clear then, and the outcome of that story was Scott turned around and walked out of the building with his tail between his legs. What was he there for? So, apparently, Justin Credible had invited him and didn't realize the heat between us. And the rest of the night, I had listened to, to PJ crying to me, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And I felt bad for throwing his friend out. You know, so I bought, I bought PJ and his wife a bottle of wine, expensive wine, to, you know, to, to sort of, you know, say I'm sorry for, for doing that. But it just, you know, it, it, there was no way I could let him walk into an ECW building and sit there as just one of the other boys because there, it wasn't just me. There were, you know, a handful of guys that he had, he'd gotten starved in WWF and so there had to be a confrontation and playing you know not just aside from my personal heat at the time but as the leader of the dressing room you know I, I genuinely looked out for the dressing room I, I couldn't have it and wouldn't have it all right Craig from Twitter wants to know if you had the opportunity to work behind the scenes at AEW or NWA which one would you choose if both paid the same Never thought of the question because I, you know, I, I don't see it see it occurring. Um, I would say probably just based off the logistics, you know, the uh, AEW because it's got national television. You know, I'm still an old school guy. TV, I think, is still still vitally important. But it'd have to also be somewhere where I think I could have an impact. 
you know, I, I don't see Billy Corgan as being the kind of guy that wants to take input from seasoned veterans. It looks to me like he wants to have his own playground and do with what he thinks should be done with it. And I, again, I've never met Tony Khan so far. I mentioned earlier, you know, about the, the lack of uh, impact that I'm seeing Arn Anderson and all the guys that I've mentioned there. But if I can't go someplace and have an impact and try to convey what I've spent 40 plus years of my life learning, then A, it's a waste of their money and B, it's a waste of my time. Time, as you know, every week we fight to try to find time to do this podcast. Uh, time is something I'm at this stage of my life. I'm not cool at all with just, just throwing time away. Time is very important to me, especially my time. All right. Samuel from Gmail wants to know what is the worst injury you ever had and how did it go down? Oh, well, the fans that have followed my career know I've had you know, a ton of, of injuries. Uh, 28, no, 29 broken bones, 18 surgeries, 11 concussions. And, you know, th- that's just counting the serious ones. You know, the, the number of sprains and pulls and all that kind of stuff. By far, the, the, the worst as far as pain level went was the f- fracture palate. That happened in a match at Ross Traver Ice Gardens. It was a three-way dance, me versus Sabu versus Tommy Dreamer. We had eliminated Dreamer, so me and Sabu were going to it. And, you know, Sabu would set the table up with the legs closed from the apron to the rail and put you on the table. Well, as he's in the ring, uh, I think he and Tommy were still going at it. And to keep me in place, Rob Van Dam had come down, who was Sabu's partner at the time, and he's working on me on the table. You know, it's going on and on and on. And I'm thinking, boy, Sabu's never this tight. You know, he's never this long with time. Sabu usually hits the stuff pretty crisp. So I'm thinking Rob is going to be my eyes. You know, as, as he's la- I'm laying there selling for him, he's going to let me know when Sabu's coming. Well, it, it, it seemed like an eternity at the time. I don't know how long it was, but it seemed like forever. And I finally looked back to see where Sabu was. And right as I looked back, he landed on my face. And the table didn't give. So I rolled off the table. It didn't knock me out. It came close. I was trying to shake off the cobwebs. Jim Molino was our referee. And he came out. I think it was Jim Molino. I'm pretty sure it was Jim. And he said, are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, give me a second. Give me a second. Finish the match. Well, that night and into the next morning, I kept getting pain, like like electric shocks in my two front teeth and the teeth immediately to the right of my front teeth. So much, I mean, I was trying, I was putting, you know, bags of frozen vegetables and ice packs and nothing was touching this pain. So I called, you know, the dentist and I said, I need you to pull some teeth. So I went over to the dentist on a Saturday appointment, Saturday or Sunday appointment. And I went over and he looked at my teeth. I can't pull your teeth. I said, why not? He said, there's nothing wrong with them. I said, the fuck there's not. These things are killing me. I can't take the pain anymore. Yank them out. And he said, I can't pull your teeth. And he showed me the x-ray. He said, there's nothing wrong. I said, the fuck there's not. There's. I'm telling you, this is fucking killing me. So he gave me a shot of Novocaine, and when he stuck that needle in the roof of my mouth, it was like somebody plugged me into a, like a 220 outlet. It, the pain was unfucking believable So, you know, when you've had Novocaine, a couple minutes go by, and it starts to soak in, and you're numb. Well, 10, 15 minutes goes by, and the pain's not subsided 1%. Well, it turned out, I later, my ex-wife later took me to a maxillofacial uh, uh, guy, or, or surgeon, and he did a pan flex. He was getting rid of leave. I'll never forget. He was getting rid of leave for France, and he stayed because of my 
mother, ex-mother-in-law's next-door neighbor worked for him. She was his secretary. So I went over to see him. He took his pan flex and he came out and he grabbed my face very gingerly and he said, do not open your mouth. And he showed me on the x-ray that the, my palate was fractured right down the middle. Thank God the fracture, was, you have displaced and non-displaced. Displaced is where they're, they're out of alignment. Mine fractured and went right back into position. And the reason I say thank God is because the way they fix that, if it's, not, if it's displaced and not aligned, they go in and they pull your lip back, they cut your gum, and they pull your face back. And they go in and rewire it from inside. So, you know, I, luckily I didn't have to be wired shut, but they, uh, I had to wear, like, every, like, I wasn't eating or talking or, you know, doing anything. I'd have to put this uh, sort of mouth guard in that would hold my mouth in place. But the pain that would pay, they give you, like the doctors will say, on a scale of 1 to 10, where's the pain? No exaggeration, this was a 25. The pain was unbelievable off the charts. All right, well, Jackson from Instagram wants to know, when you defeated CM Punk in the Clockwork Orange House of Fun match, what did you think of CM Punk as an opponent at that time? Well, you know, I heard of Punk, and I'd seen some of his stuff, but had never been in the ring with him. Uh, before we went to the ring, he impressed me with his dressing room acumen. You know, uh, you know, he was very well mannered in the dressing room. And I don't mean like in an ass-kissing way. He was just one of the boys. And so you could get a feeling that even as young as he was, he had some understanding of the business and, you know, what, you know, how many times you hear the term old school, new school. You could tell that he, he definitely had a toe in the old school. Uh, whoever trained him, trained him properly. You know, he, he impressed me in the ring, and he's, he's since impressed me, you know, both before he left the road, and, and I haven't seen much of the stuff since he's been back, but, you know, when you find a style of promo delivery that can capture the audience, that's a hard thing to do because you're either, you know, most people think they go out and mimic Ric Flair or mimic, you know, Stone Cold Steve Austin or Dwayne Johnson, that they're going to get over, and yet that's already been done. I think Punk sort of carved out a very different delivery style that was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but very uniquely his own. He always worked hard in the ring. Unlike most of his peers that were even then starting to digress to do the, okay, when we lock up, I'll do this, then you do that, and then I'll do this and this and this, and then you do that and that and that, and then just go over it and go over it and go over it. I saw Punk working his matches, and I think that's part of big reason, a big part of the reason why he got over to the extent he did. All right, I'm going to use this time to take a quick break to remind you of our sponsor, the official attorney of Franchise with Shane Douglas, the one and only best lawyer in the world, Stephen P. New. Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. 350 days. Legends, champions, survivors. 350 days a year as a wrestler on the road. Maybe it's a sickness. 350 days a year. A lot of physical pain. A lot of loneliness. You have no home life whatsoever. Piper and me riding down the road, doing eight balls of cocaine. 
I'm sure it broke up marriages. How many guys uh, in the wrestling business have a family left when they're done? Most of them lose it. I couldn't have children. I couldn't put them on a turnbuckle while mommy worked. I hit the bars. That was my character. Sitting in a room with a bunch of wrestlers doing cocaine, we really got to know each other. I would take a lot of downers, and uh, I, I did have problems with the, with the downers. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I was not a faithful husband from the first day, the whole time on the road. I lived a double life. I needed it. It was like, I'm not getting the love I needed home. Would I do, oh, would I do, oh my God, I'm afraid to say I would do it again. I wouldn't change it then. No regrets. Well, I want to tell you, you know, to make some big money in wrestling, you had to wrestle every night of the week, $30 every day. So you had to wrestle six and seven times every week just to earn your money. 350 days on the road with wrestlers, a living hell. 350 days, now available on Prime Video and iTunes. For more information, go to 350daysthemovie.com. Hello, Rich Quick here with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Oh, and it is a special time of year, boys and girls. It is a special day. Yes, it is, because it is that time of year where yours truly gets the chance to ask the franchise a question. Now, I am a firm believer that you, you can do and achieve anything you set your mind to. But, you know, some people are just sometimes born ahead of their time. You know, Leonardo da Vinci, Plato, Pythagoras even. You know, yeah, he said the earth was round. Imagine that. See, point is, never stop being you. As the old saying goes, everything old becomes new again. So you just keep being you, baby. You keep learning. You keep getting better. And never, ever slow down to meet the pack. You make them some bitches catch you. And they will. They'll catch up. Eventually. <laughs> so, my question to the franchise is, who is a wrestler slash character from your era that could get over today? Ah, hmm. uh, that's a good question. Oh, a great question, even. Hmm. Now, if I do say so myself. Now, b before I go, I do encourage you to subscribe to the franchise stream and be a part of Quick Advice with Rich Quick. Check it out. Yeah, so until next week, this has been Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Coming straight out of one quick moment in Shane Douglas history, Rich Quick wants to know, who is a wrestler from your era that could get over in today's wrestling arena? Sabu. You know, even though we've seen all that flying stuff, Sabu had a, a, violent, a violent way that he presented his stuff. But what I always loved about Sabu was that no matter what he did, whether he was inflicting punishment or, you know, uh, taking a move, 
he sold his ass off. And that just sort of legitimized his own stuff. And you see the brilliance of it by today's standards is everybody hits these goddamn triple lindies and flying all over the place. And they get right up and they hold their hands up or they do the, come on, give me more pop, you know, that kind of stuff. Well, Sabu, when he would do that stuff, would be laying, selling as much as the guy he just hit. There, there was an eloquence to it that was, it was a simplistic eloquence that, you know, when you boil all the bullshit away, that's if, if, you know, the old Bill Wattsism, if it were real, that, you know, if you would do one of these crazy jumps that Sabu used to do with a chair or landing on a table or whatever else, it would hurt you too. And the kids today seem to have lost sight. Selling is an art form that's been lost completely in our business. That said, there are others like when I look at Taz, Taz to me, we just talked, me and Bubba just talked about this at Spartanburg the other day. He was as believable and as legit a talent as I'd ever stood in the ring with. So I think that if the, People running the business, which, again, this is a big IF, capital F, if they would allow Taz to do what Taz does, if, capital I, capital F, the announcers put him over like he should be put over. I think if Taz could work as well today as he ever did, uh, legitimacy is the name of our game, or at least it used to be. Something that's lost in great quantity today, I think. All right, Riddled from Twitter asks, in 2016, you were involved in a class action lawsuit against the WWE. What happened with that, and what was it over? The class action lawsuit was over the uh, the concussion lawsuit uh, that mimicked like, the NFLs. The NFL, uh, at least on the surface of it, clearly had more concern for their players. And I think part of that was because they got caught concealing the information. The NFL had long known how serious concussions were and the long-term impact that would have on the players. The uh, WWF, WWE, had the same thing. In 1995, they did a segment where Shawn Michaels talked about a concussion that he allegedly had <laughs> from getting beaten up by 643 people in Rochester, uh, New York. Um, <laughs> and they played it off. And the, and the doctor, I think it might have been Dr. Unger, I'm not sure about the doctor, but I remember they had a legitimate doctor talking about the long-term effects, and I forget the words that he used, but he sort of very strongly implied in so many words concussion syndrome and, you know, the uh, the whole long-term effects that, excuse me, uh, uh, chronic, uh, what is it, a chronic something encephalopathy, that, that Dr. Amalu, the movie Concussion is about. And so it's pretty hard for the WWF, at least in my book, to sit back in 2020 and say, well, geez, we had no idea when you have this segment that you aired in 1995 that clearly depicts that and, and have sanitized off of their network and other things since what the guys in our business and women in our business have done in our careers. Nobody's complaining about the injuries. We all know that's part of the game. But when you know that your boss, knew that doing things like taking chair shots or getting hit in the head or whatever else could cause you serious long-term disability and doesn't say anything and then sanitizes certain footage out to sort of quote-unquote prove that he didn't know anything. I think mean, the, the evidence is clear. The NFL settled because they had to. If they'd have fought it, they'd have lost and probably lost big. Vince, as I've often, as I told the attorney with the lawsuit, if God or Jesus Christ appeared before Vince McMahon and told him to settle, he would tell him to fuck off. That's the way Vince McMahon thinks. Look, I don't want a dime from Vince McMahon. I do want what 
me or my family is deserving of. Uh, I've busted my ass since I got my first job when I was 13 years old. And before that was cutting grass and shoveling sidewalks and everything else to make money. You know, so it just sort of mystifies me as to how the WWE, especially with their, you know, being a public entity, a publicly traded entity. I wonder if the institutional investment firms that invest in WWE are aware of how they've concealed this issue. And the impact that issue's had on several of its people that have worked there, you know, we, we've, it's renowned. We talk long term about you know, how many people have died in the business and things. How many of them died as a result of concussion syndrome, you know, that, that contributed to their drug use or their self-medicating or whatever else? But the answer is we don't know. We won't know until the answer is given in, in, in the courtroom. My understanding of where the lawsuit stands, I haven't spoken to the attorney in some time, is that uh, it's, you know, there was some negative uh, pushback from the courts. They've gone back and amended the documents and resubmitted them and are ready to fight it uh, further. Uh, but in the meantime, I've had some contact with some people that want to really dig into this from a documentary standpoint. And uh, hopefully we'll have some news real soon on that for uh, all the franchisees. Nice. Johnny wants to know, who is the best wrestler, in your opinion, of the last decade? Of the last decade? Uh, let me think here. You know, prefacing with the fact that I haven't watched much in the last decade. Ooh. I, you know, you have some of crossover. I mean, you look at a guy like Rey Mysterio, right, that had, had worked, you know, still working. Rey was always, always impressed me. Aside from being a good friend, I mean, Ray, Ray Mysterio Jr. always impressed me in the ring. But there are some others, you know, that, uh, you know, some fans of the, of the show might be surprised. Luke Hawks was somebody that, that we had personal heat for some time. But Luke always impressed me. He went from being there when he was uh, choir boy Luke, older boy Luke, skinny little scrawny kid and did like all the flying stuff. He had since grown out of that and you know put the size on put the muscle on and really focused on his craft i'd say luke is is up there because he understands telling a story wait 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 wait. so you are telling me right now that luke hawks is in the running in your opinion for being the best wrestler of the last decade yeah i've never once in my life told you that you were wrong but jesus christ man you are freaking wrong who the hell is luke hawks compared to some of these guys out here that are busting their ass making a name for themselves i didn't even know who luke hawks was until i did research for the xpw episode yeah well that that's again look where the business hits today you know how many week after week we talk about going out and i'll challenge you you know this coming monday next wednesday when we're there watch match one match two match three match four match five and tell me substantively what story is each match telling and substantively what makes match two different from match one or three. There's nothing. It's all the same moves being done over and over again. And again, I hope that next week we get blown out of our seats. You know, so that's what somebody like me, a season better looks at and grades on. It's not a question of this guy does the moves prettier or better than somebody else does them. Are they telling a story? You know, because we look, the one thing I know before we, if I drop dead before next Wednesday, I know that the vast majority, if not the entire dressing room, can do 26 triple Indies. 
I know they all know how to punch and kick in the face. They might knock your teeth out here or there, but that's not important, apparently, these days. You know, so what separates? To me, it's being able to go out and tell that story and doing it in a way that's different than what comes before you or comes after you. And there's a responsibility, like Bill Watts used to say, when you walk in that back door, whatever time of the day that is, as long as you're on time, you're on the clock. You're at work. And so it ain't a question about sitting here and, and you and me sitting here and talking and saying, okay, well, let's go over this for the 150th time, for the third, fourth hour in a row. Okay, when we lock up, I'll do this and you do that, and then I'll do this and this and you do that and that. Because if we do that, we've not watched the matches before ours, so how do we know that we're not going to go out and replicate what the match before ours did? And the answer is they don't, they, 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 which, mean, which shows you that the why of why match one and two and three and four all look the same. And for the life of me, it makes me scratch my head because why isn't somebody screaming in the dressing room? Pay the fuck attention. Do something different. And, and you just don't see these. So, you know, when, I, when I'm going to give names of, of, of whoever as to who's most impressed me in the last 10 years, little newsflash, it probably ain't going to be somebody that you've seen on WWE, NXT, AEW, or any of the other companies that have been around, TNA or whatever. No, apparently uh, because, it's going to be Luke Hawks. Well, <laughs> I didn't say the best. I, I he talks so much shit about because, you. Look, so have a lot of other people, right? It's, uh, but ours is a business that I see. You know, Bubba, again, we had this very long discussion. First of all, I got a little bucket list of uh, film that shit. Uh, uh, Bubba, you know, the, the, the South Carolina uh, uh, Commission uh, was blocking some guys from working, and a lot of guys didn't show up because they didn't have their licenses. So they needed somebody to do Alexis. So the old guy, the 29-year-old guy, ended up working twice and Bubba needed somebody in his match to do a tag with him. And hell, I'll do it. And I had a shitload of fun. But here's the thing. You go back and look at what Bubba Ray Dudley did in that match with C.W. Anderson and John. I'm sorry. I can't remember his last name. John, uh, uh, he was with NXT. Hell of a worker. Really, really good kid. And I, again, I apologize for not I'm horrible with names anymore. But we went out and Bubba did nothing super duper extra special but he just popped the fuck as did cw and john popped the fuck out of the crowd the crowd was on their feet standing cheering popping yelling ec dub ec dub that's their money's worth those fans got their money's worth at that big time wrestling show in spartanburg last saturday night so that's the stuff that i gauge off of you know there were a million wrestlers that were better are doing high spots than me a million wrestlers that were better than doing chain wrestling than me but i'd put myself pretty high up there with the total package of being able to wrestle being able to go out and tell a story my promos certainly elevated everything uh and that's what i'm talking about and, and i now again to, to take this away from me sounding like i'm just shitting on all the kids today with these kids athleticism i think i believe no i know that if there was somebody leading that would be able to tell these kids, stop doing that shit, do it like this, take the reins off them with with some parameters, you know, you can't just go out and just vomit up whatever the fuck you want to do. I think these kids with their athleticism would rewrite history of wrestling. 
but as is right now, what separates one from two from three from this company to that company to that company? It's the same. Do you, I mean, do you agree or disagree? I mean, is it does it all not start to look the same? Well, I, I mean, that's that, that's a matter of of perspective, I guess. But I would say that if someone asked me the question, and I know no one gives a shit what I think, but if they asked me the question and, and, and said, "Hey, who are the top three hundred wrestlers of the decade?" Uh, nobody gets. Nobody gives a fuck. What's the next question? No, <laughs> Luke Hawks would not be on my list of 300 wrestlers in the decade that were top. But, but, my but my to wrestler fair, of the decade would be AJ Styles. For me, it's a no-brainer that AJ Styles is the best wrestler of the last decade, in my opinion. AJ, look, everybody knows my feelings about AJ. I think, aside from being a great guy, uh, no pun intended, a phenomenal athlete. And he's really... I'd say in the last two or three years, started putting together all the pieces of that athleticism like I'm talking about. His promos have gotten much better. He can still get better, but his promos have gotten much better. Uh, he's not just going out like he did in TNA and just vomiting up move after move after move. He's putting it together in a semblance of telling a story. So clearly there. But let me ask you a question. And again, I don't feel like I'm defending Luke Hawks because everybody knew the heat between us. How many matches of Luke Hawks have you watched? Um, I would say that would probably be. Uh, is it is it possible to say negative one? <laughs> so uh, again, you're you know you're, you're judging it off of you know what you've either read or hearsay or whatever. Look, I, actually, I, I judge I, Luke Hawks on one thing. Uh, the only thing I judge Luke Hawks on is that he talks shit about the franchise Shane Douglas, <laughs> and that's all I needed to know about Luke Hawks at that point. Lex from Instagram wants to know. Why were you not a part of either One Night Stand or the Rise and Fall DVD? Well, whenever I left there in 95, I said I'd never work for him again. And there was an incident that I'd spoken about a little bit in the past, not much. But I was on the call. I was in the room when Vincent Mann called Paul to set up all that, the, the, first, the, the, the first invasion. For some reason, I guess, thinking he could torture me. Vince kept telling Paul, he's, you know, Shane Douglas had to be there. I was the franchise of ECW, blah, blah, blah. And Paul kept saying, no, you don't want him there. You don't want him there. You don't want him there. You know, he kept pushing the point. And he finally said to Paul, well, don't you just tell your employees what they're going to do? And Paul said, no. And uh, you worked with Shane. He said, I don't think you, you know, you, you understand that Shane's not the kind of guy to just do what he's told to do. He said, trust me, uh, you and Sean, neither one are going to want him there. <laughs> that was what put an end to that whole idea. But yeah, I, I had no look. I, I, Tommy Dreamer and uh, Jim Ross and several people had called me four times to date about you know bringing me back the, the WWF after I left, and I, I was never an asshole about it. I, I told them all the same exact thing. I said, please tell Vince I appreciate him thinking of me, but I left there and said I'd never work there, and I'm sticking to that. Now what's the old saying? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I wasn't giving them a chance to fuck me twice. So, but they did call you for one night stand. They did call you for the rise and fall DVD. You just did not want to have anything to do with it. Yes. And when he, when, from what Tommy Dreamer told me, after they decided to relaunch ECW, I was the first call. I told Tommy exactly the same thing. 
that I just told you, Tommy kept calling. And the second phone call, I was living in Florida at the time, in uh, Paris, Florida. And I went over to Applebee's because, you know, Tommy and I are friends, always have been and always will be. And uh, we bullshitted for about five or six hours on the phone. And I just kept reiterating to him, look, I, you know, I appreciate it. But the one thing I was certain of, I knew Vince McMahon wasn't trying to bring back ECW to get ECW over. There had to be an ulterior motive, and my belief to this day is that the ulterior motive was he was sick and tired of hearing the ECW chant, and so figured he'd put out an ECW that was so abysmally not ECW that he thought it would stop the fans from chanting it. It didn't quite work that way. It definitely did not. Did you ever get a chance to watch the rise and fall of ECW DVD? Watch pieces of it. Uh, the funny thing... That I find in that is that uh, I think it's seven or eight minutes into the DVD, uh, Paul Heyman goes into the soliloquy about, without a doubt, the most important character in the history of ECW was a character by the name of the franchise, Shane Douglas, and then goes into a nine-minute segment about what I meant to that company. And then you go back and you look at the network and see how much of the franchise you can find on the network. You know, it's been brought to my attention from several fans uh, that as they look for this or that or the other thing, uh, they suddenly can't find it on the uh, network. So, you know, to the 30 or 40 bucks per quarter that Vince would send out for that shit, which is about what he would pay, <laughs> if he thought that the money he was paying me at the time, which was horrible, wasn't enough to get me to kiss his ass, literally or figuratively, if he does, if he thinks that me losing out on the 30 or 40 bucks per quarter will be enough to get me to fall in line, he let's just say he don't know the ver- franchise very well, do he? well in my opinion the rise and fall of ecw is one of the best dvds the uh, wwe ever put out but george from twitter has a question in your opinion what is the greatest tag team of all time i mean there's so many variables i i i really hate questions like that not because i hate the question being asked but there's so many variables that go into that you know like the styles and the amount drawn and all that sort of thing. So you'd have, you know, for somebody to ask that question, they'd have to ask me like who I think was the biggest tag team draw. You know, I think in that argument, the rock and roll express or the, the, the uh, road warriors would get the nod. If you're asking about, uh, you know, the, who was the greatest tag team workers, you know, I think you certainly have to put, uh, you know, the Briscoes in there or uh, the Funks steamboat and, uh, uh, young blood, you know, would certainly have some argument in that case. You know, there's again, there's so many variables, but uh, then when you look at the most decorated, you've got to talk about the Dudleys, right? Again, there's so many variables, they have to be more specific as to what they want me to answer. Well, I guess, uh, let me, I, I don't know what George meant, but I will, uh, I will get specific. Who is your favorite tag team as a fan? Who is your favorite tag team of all time? Again, there's so many there. You know, that was a huge, huge mark for uh, Midnight Express. But I got to say, you know, watching the Rock and Roll Express still pop crowds today and being there when they were on their, you know, I won't say their first runs, but, you know, when they were really, really big, you know, it was really fun to watch, you know, and, and, and you see them still today going out and doing the same thing. I watched them last week at the big time show in Spartansburg, Spartanburg and Durham the night before, just popping the crowd. And, you know, it, just a complete pushback and repudiation of the argument of, well, the business has changed. Because the fans that are watching that show certainly seem to get as much entertainment out of the Rock and Roll Express last weekend 
as they did 25 or 30 years ago. All right, Louie from Twitter asks, what is your opinion of John Cena? Uh, again, it stands, though, I'm, I'm more like of a stalwart on work. But I'll say this, I, I, I've often in the past called John Cena the Hulk Hogan of his day. And what I mean by that is this. You know, Hogan was never going to win me over with his wrestling style, as I don't think Cena will. When you're at that level, and, you know, I've been to the to the peak levels in different companies that I've worked for, the amount of demands that are placed on your time is extraordinary. And I'll never forget watching Hogan. Uh, I've often called John Cena the Hulk Hogan of his generation. You know, watching Hulk Hogan, you know, whose time was extraordinarily tight, would go out and meet you know, a bunch of sick kids that have a room set up, you know, there'd be kids in wheelchairs and, you know, make-a-wish kids. And, you know, sick kids is something that breaks my heart. And I'm so thankful to whatever gods there are that I have two healthy boys, and I hope it remains that way because sick kids is just something that, I, I, that just is fucked up to me. And when I saw Terry Hogan going and meeting these kids, He'd always have a handler with him. You know, he'd be talking to the kids and really putting them over. And the handler would come up and say, okay, uh, boys and girls, Mr. Hogan's going to get ready for his match. And, and if Hogan wasn't ready to leave, he'd put his finger up and say, I'm not done yet. And then he would spend as much time with each of those kids, making them feel special as they damn well deserve to have. And then he'd do stuff like, yeah, I got the iron sheet. Like, do you mind if the Hulkster rubs your arms and gets some of that energy from your brother? And these kids would just blossom like flowers in the sunlight. And to me, that was so fucking cool to watch that he had an easy out. He could say, oh, hey, I got to go. The handler says, I got to go. And he never did, never turned his back on those kids, made every one of those kids feel special. Uh, I've heard, uh, I've not been around him, but I've heard the same kind of stories about Cena. And to me, that that does away with whatever differences I might have on, on, on their working style. Because as, as Bill Watts used to often say, Thanksgiving dinner, nobody wants just a big pile of turkey. They want a little bit of everything. And I think Hogan and Cena from different generations feel that something different. Uh, but take the time to make sure that kids, especially sick kids, get to be made to feel as special as they should be allowed to be fit, to feel. You know, I feel the same way about John Cena. He has more make-a-wish. He, he is granted more make-a-wishes than any other person in any sport ever. Very cool. Yeah, it's very, uh, very cool. Pretty awesome. Pr- pretty, de- pretty damn awesome. So, uh, yeah, sure Ryan, Ryan from Facebook wants to know, I have heard you talk about your addiction to opiates and how you kicked the habit. How did you do it, and how hard was it to accomplish? Well, first of all, it wasn't something I suggest as a uh, as a hobby. It was incredibly difficult. I've often likened it to one pubic hair below impossible. The hardest thing I've ever physically done in my life. But, you know, there was never a time, because, like, drugs were never really my deal. Uh, I'd like to have a drink now and then. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, I was so embarrassed and ashamed that it had happened in the first place. And so the way I would dig into any problem was, like, how did it happen? Now, for somebody like me that didn't do drugs, how did I end up addicted to these opiates? And so that helped a ton, was just being able to intellectually wrap my brain around all of this. What did party pharmaceuticals do? How did they market this? And they, you know, blatantly lied and have since, you know, settled in multiple class action lawsuits. And I forget the family's name, but, you know, they clearly were putting profit over patients, which is not what medicine's about. If somebody's accepted medical school, Doctors take a Hippocratic oath, first do no harm. 
putting this drug in the hands of everyday people was for goddamn certain going to cause harm. And so I, I think whatever happened to par- party pharmaceuticals, whatever happened to them from this point, with all the state's class action lawsuits, they damn well deserve because they put a very dangerous drug on the market. Uh, OxyContin is 100% pure synthetic heroin. The heroin that you buy in the street is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25% pure. When it starts to hit 30, 35%, people start dropping dead. So the fact that Purdue Pharmaceuticals puts out, and most importantly, our government, the FDA, approved it for dissemination for things like tooth poles and strained muscles, patently absurd. It's just all the reasons why I don't trust government at all. The way I did it was multi-pronged approach because I had failed about as miserably and about as spectacularly as you could fail trying to do it my own way. And so when I got off the drug, I had detoxed myself and was off. Uh, this is uh, February, uh, December 22nd, 2005 was my last dose of OxyContin. Uh, six weeks later in February, I still felt like shit. I mean, really, really bad. And I started getting worried that I must have fucked myself up inside, must have caused some kind of problem or, you know, health issue inside. And so I went and checked myself into the hospital. While I was there, I resolved that I would, if they told me to stand on my left foot on the second Tuesday of the month and pick my nose with my right index finger and jump up and down, I'd have done it. If they had told me to, you know, mix eye of newt with bat wings, and snort that, I would have done that, because I had failed as spectacularly as you could fail doing it my own way. Uh, but I was very fortunate to meet a doctor whose name I won't mention because he's not involved in this field anymore, that had explained to me not just the physical process of addiction, but the uh, the ritual of addiction. And that, you know, putting the pills in your hand, counting them. Uh, it's, it's sort of like somebody that smokes, the way they roll the cigarette in their fingers and flick the ashes and do all there's a ritual that they're going through and when he turned me on to that i never had thought of from that point of view before and i started realizing he's right like you get this little bit of an excitement when you're getting close to taking your 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 dose whatever time of the day that was and then counting them and all of that and so once i was turned on to that and then coupling that with intellectually wrapping my brain around using oxycontin and how did this happen it, it it really did put like a clarity to it that I hadn't ever had before that. Uh, and then, you know, they, he, that same doctor had also given me multiple ways of dealing with the pain. Uh, yoga, uh, I still do yoga, uh, biotherapy, uh, biofeedback therapy, you know, and I still go to a pain specialist every month and I get shots of what's called prototherapy in my neck where they shoot sugar and salt water into into the area and that causes the the inflammation process which brings oxygen to the area but i would say that for everybody's different to do whatever works for you and what really 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 helped me in a huge way you know they tell you that once you start to get off the drugs to go to uh uh na meetings right and you know i i had resisted that in the past thinking like i'm not an addict and all that kind of bullshit they tell you to do 90 meetings in the first 90 days. Why did 90 meetings in 35 days? Uh, because I was just going from meeting to meeting to meeting, and that chewed up my time. And that allowed me to not sit there and think, because the worst thing to an addict is free time. When you sit there, because what happens is your brain starts going, hey, you've been off it for a month or two. You can, you can take, come on, you can take one. ain't going to cause a problem. It's like an alcoholic. As soon as you take that first sip of whatever it is, you're off to the races again. You're off the wagon. 
And, you know, so by indulging myself and just, you know, and just uh, submersing myself in those NA meetings and listening to people, what it first did to me was it allowed me to realize that this strikes people from all walks of life. There were doctors and lawyers and teachers and professors and, you know, street people that were in these meetings. And I'd look around that room and I'd think to myself, if these people can do this, then sure as hell I can. And, you know, it just gave me just a completely different perspective on it. I, I threw every thought process that I'd had prior out the window because for five years I had failed, like I said, as spectacularly as somebody could fail. And that was trying multiple, two, three, four times a month my way. And so whatever they told me to do, I did in spades. And I started realizing after like two or three or four months, although there was still an urge there, it was less of an urge than it was before. And with each time that, you know, and I continue to go to the NA meetings and just surround myself with those people, you know, to, to know that hey, they're in the same boat and predicament that I'm in. And, you know, they're, they're doing something right that's helping them. I followed their path. I learned from them just like I learned wrestling from the great icons that I learned from. I learned from the people I was in those rooms with and just made a commitment to myself that I was not going to do that again because it should have killed me. When I stopped taking and I told the doctor, you know, they're asking how much were you taking, that kind of thing. And I told them what I was taking. You know, the doctor said, no, no, because I was taking 17 80 milligram OxyContin tablets in the morning, 17 in the afternoon, and 17 in the evening, over 5,000 milligrams of OxyContin a day. And he said, no, no, that, 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 you mean 17 a day? I said, no, 17 three times a day. And he said, well, there's never been a documented dose that high that didn't kill somebody. And my exact words to him were, Doc, I ain't bragging to you. I'm shooting with you. I'm telling you what I was taking. And when he told me that, it planted that seed in my head that for whatever reason, it didn't kill me, that I wasn't going to look that gift horse in the mouth. I didn't want to end up a statistic. And I was terrified of that happening. And after I'd gotten off in the next, it was December, a year next, uh, December of the next year, I was at my son's uh, Christmas concert. And, you know, he's a musician, so he's always involved in the Christmas, you know, the holiday concerts. And this, he was in second grade at the time, and he played Frosty the Snowman. And I'd noticed something very quickly. When he would come out on stage, he'd never look at it for his mother. He would look for me. But she would never sit anywhere near me, as, as far away as you could get, you know. And I noticed that really quickly. And when he came out on the stage and he was dressed in this big white puff ski jacket, and during Frosty the Snowman, he did this little dance and then went back in line. And he looked at me and, you know, and I, I gave him like the fucking right. That was cool. Dude. Like the thumbs up, you know, and his ear to ear grin like he couldn't wipe it off his face. Just popped huge. And brother, honest to God, two seconds later, the weight of guilt of the world came down on my head. It was, cr it was like somebody dropped a semi truck on top of my head. And I thought to myself, what would this boy be doing right now if God forbid I would have succumbed to it and died to it and that guilt on top of everything else i just said was enough to keep my ass straight and narrow and i i can honestly say i don't miss it and for anybody that's going through that predicament right now i get how tough it is pick it out because i assure you sooner or later the sun starts to come up and you have a new appreciation for life like your children the sunrise or a sunset the smell of cut grass crazy little things like that that I'd never ever thought about before suddenly I was paying attention to and I can assure you life on this side of addiction or physical dependence 
is far more rewarding and fun and uh, uh, appreciable than be- than going through it or before it. You know what's crazy is I'm actually uh, you know I- I've said plenty of times on the show that I'm from West Virginia and West Virginia got hit really hard with opiates. Oh now, yeah. I myself I've never even done an opiate once in my life, but smart. So many so many of the people that I know from West Virginia. I mean, it's crazy. I moved to Florida in October of 2018. It is mm-hmm. now 2020, so it's a little bit over a year that I have been here in Florida. And since I have been here, 48 people that I know personally have died from OD. Isn't that crazy? 48. Look, that stuff will kind of, I was talking to my son earlier today. Because last week I'd done some interviews talking about the Brian Pillman Classic coming up and have had the opportunity, the, the pleasure of meeting Brian Pillman Jr. What a great kid. Uh, I say kid, you know, kid to me. Um, but, you know, I, I, the, the, the words that I had said about Brian were, and I stand behind them, you, you know, Brian was a rare talent in our business that did things very, very differently than what came before him. But no matter whether you liked Brian Pillman or didn't like him or his style in the ring, you couldn't take your eyes off of him. And the fact that he died as young as he did in a hotel room in Indianapolis, Indiana, aside from the human impact, the the, the impact that had on his children and his family and his fans and everybody else, you know, when you take that shit, you know, with if you take an aspirin, for a headache and it works sooner or later if you take them every day sooner or later you need to take two and then four and then eight the fact that somebody who was a professional athlete in the nfl prior to being in wrestling had overachieved his entire life yet could not beat that demon ought to be a cautionary tale to anybody out there thinking of taking heroin for the first time or taking whatever pill do not trust like i did your doctors hey they're prescribing it and the pharmacist giving it to me must be safe do your own homework before you put anything into your body, anything into your mouth. Make damn sure you know what you're putting in there. Because like the old saying goes, your body's a temple and, you know, your body is your temple. You know, if you're not going to take care of it and take the time to figure out what's safe or unsafe to put in your mouth, then God knows what can happen. You know, I just found out from Bobby Fulton that he has throat cancer. He's been to his doctor for two years. Fighting with his doctor, there's something wrong with my throat, something wrong, something wrong, something wrong. Please give me a referral to a throat, ear, nose, and throat specialist. And the doctor who, this must be added in, gets paid to not give referrals by the insurance company, refused to do that until Bobby started spitting up gobs of blood. And then after he grabbed, the, you know, confronted the doctor physically with the ear, nose, and throat specialist, was finally able to get that referral he should have been able to get two years prior. So the doctor put a few bucks in his pocket for those two years. Bobby trusted his doctor for those two years and ends up with throat cancer that could have probably been nipped in the bud prior to that. Trust your instincts. When you know something's wrong, trust your instincts. And with with the opiates and all that shit, you know, for, for the life of me, I cannot believe or understand how any kid today would say, hey, you know what? I've read all this shit about heroin, all these people dying from heroin, but I'm going to go out and give it a try today because it sounds like it might be fun. Don't. Don't. 
Yeah, it makes zero sense why anyone would even go near it. I like I, I like to say, you know, I love tomatoes, but if tomatoes were dropping motherfuckers like flies, I think I'd leave them off my sandwich. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, and again, let's face it. Today, these kids have information. When we were young, we had to pick up a newspaper and read a newspaper and maybe a couple articles. And you might not catch that particular. You know, today, everything, you're beating over the head with all the information. They have it at a touch of a fingertip. You know, there there cannot be a kid on the planet today, at least in this country, that doesn't have a clue that that opiates are very, very dangerous and need to be treated with with a, a, a huge amount of respect and caution. Uh, so, to me, there's no there's no discussion about why. Well, yeah, I know they're dangerous, but there is no but. You're playing with your life. Your body's a temple. If you're not going to treat it that way, and you end up dead, you really got nobody to complain. To. You know, so please, for anybody listening to this, don't think like, oh, he's just an old fogey, doesn't know what he's talking about or whatever. I've watched over well over 300 of my peers uh, put in the ground, and it's a painful thing to see. You know, once you get to the point where you start to get numb to it, that's where you know it's really fucked up. You know, when you get the phone call, hey, you hear about so-and-so, and you know what's coming next. That's sad when it becomes that routine for us which it has in wrestling. So please, for anybody listening out there, if you have kids, please sit down and talk to your kids and have this discussion with them. If anybody ever wants, needs to talk to me about something like this, you know, directly, please contact ShaneDouglas.com or whatever. Uh, I don't want to see my worst enemy go through this, let alone people I love. And as a father, that's what terrifies me today is that this shit is so damned available to these kids. You know, I understand you're a kid and you think you're invincible. Just please stay away from that shit. There's a lot of other ways to have fun that you don't need to play with that shit. It's, there, there's no good outcome to that. And this is a great time to mention our sponsor, Stephen P. New, who is actually actively suing these doctors that have uh, and, and these, these drug companies that have done this to people. You know, if, if you're in a situation where there's a kid addicted to opiates from birth, or if you, uh, you know, if, if opiates have ruined your life and you got them from a doctor, call Stephen P. New because he is getting settlements for people left and right over the same exact thing that we're talking about. Well, and you know, like, you hate to talk about litigation right on stuff because I think that in general, the, the, the country and the world have become too litigious. But that said, when you have the FDA, which used to be, underscore and boldface those words used to be the gold standard in the world our government agency that okays and approves medicines to go out to the market 25 35 years ago if the fda said a drug was safe you could literally bet your life on it you didn't have to second guess it and since then we've seen black box warnings put out on antidepressants for five and six year olds i don't know about you but i was five or six years old how the what the fuck was there to be upset about in the world? You know, depressed about right. in the world. Right. But when you're putting a black box warning, and that black box black box warning says, you know, increased chances of hanging. I don't know about you, but I'm not giving my kid something that might increase his risk of hanging himself. Right. You know, and and you go back and there's I, I can't remember the act the the the, uh, the letters, but there was an agency one night I was in a hotel room in Chicago, woke up in the middle of the night. And I'm reading, you know, there's an infomercial type show on the on the TV. Well, I never pay attention to those, but 
started listening and hearing these certain words and buzz phrases kick out to me. And they started identifying what was wrong with the FDA today. And when it came to how did this all happen, how did the FDA approve something like OxyContin for general population use? Here's the thing about OxyContin. It works. So if you're in pain, like if you're dying of cancer, if you have some inoperable problem and you're in a ton of pain, they ought to prescribe you OxyContin because it does work. But if you have had a tooth pulled, if you've got a pulled muscle in your back and you're taking OxyContin, your doctor prescribing OxyContin for that, you might want to start asking questions because it sure as shit should never be a, uh, di- pr- uh, prescribed for that. But this company, this agency, whatever it was, this uh, nonprofit, I believe it was, was talking about the FDA. How did this, this government body that was the gold standard in the world suddenly start to okay this stuff? And it came down to, and I'm probably going to get the numbers wrong, but it was something like in the nation, in America, there were something like 50 or 60 attorneys who specialized in pharmaceutical law. These were the attorneys that the FDA would turn to. Let's say if Brian Reznor came up with a new wonder drug, you had to present it to this board that included these attorneys that would tear it to shreds. And so you really had to have your I's dotted and your T's crossed and all your research in order to get that drug through. Well, what happened was these pharmaceutical companies got smart. And so they went and hired all these attorneys, these 50, 60 attorneys, and put them under, uh, uh, what is it when you hire your uh, hired attorney on, uh, they call it on retainer, put them on retainer, you know, paid them at 500000 a year, a million a year. And then when these drugs would come up uh, to the FDA, there were no attorneys that specialized. So they had to use these same attorneys with the pretty, pretty please cherry on top. I won't do anything I shouldn't. They were telling the FDA to go ahead and approve these drugs. And that's how these drugs made it to market. There's a whole great big ton of information about this with the FDA, and people need to dig into that. But rest it to say, I always start with, like I told you before we, we got started with this episode, all things government, like my professor in college used to say, with all things government, start with a healthy dose of skepticism and pessimism and, and then go from there. Today, I hear people saying, well, the, the government says, well, fuck what the government says. I don't trust those bastards to begin with. So start there, because this is your life, your body, your health we're talking about. All right, I got one more question for you, and this one is going to be a tough one, and I'm really interested on what your answer is. But Chris from Twitter wants to know, when do you plan to retire from in-ring competition? Wow. Well, you know, I, I've sort of semi-retired, I guess you'd call it now, because, you know, I've, I've certainly slowed down from what I was doing. You know, I will always enjoy performing. You know, it's just part of our blood. You know, and, and I've you know been blessed to have a long career and a, a prodigious career. But, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that it's much tougher physically today than it's ever been. You know, I've started getting my resume out and, you know, putting things out, uh, you know, to try to, quote, unquote, get a big – time to get a grown-up job right for the rest of my life uh and, and i think i'm there you know again i'll i'll love doing this till i was 300 if i could live that long the problem is uh to me it's like groundhog day all over again repeating itself uh there's really no challenge to it and you know i've learned i've amassed a ton aside from my education i've you know amassed a ton of experience in marketing in uh, uh, public speaking, in uh, uh, communications, in 
production, uh, you know, in management, in so many different fields that I think are going to be relevant to a lot of people out there uh, bringing the same kind of acumen that I brought to the ring. You know, every, from the time I was a kid that didn't know what the hell I was going to the time I was a world champion, I never sat back and took it for granted. And I never sat back and thought, hey, you know, I can take tonight easy because the building's half full or whatever. Every match I approached the champion's attitude, and I looked to bring that to the same thing whenever I finally move into whatever phase, uh, what is the next chapter of the franchise's life? And, and, and that, the prospect of that excites me, it, like lighting a fire under my ass. I'm ready for that next challenge and looking forward to it. So you don't think it will be tomorrow, but it could be soon, but you're not sure. Well, I think, I think the idea of seeing the franchise in the ring at this time next year is pretty unlikely. Uh, again, this to me is not, it's like reached a point of, you know, me needing that challenge and what what it is I can do to to provide that challenge. And, you know, with all that experience I've amassed, you know, keep in mind, I've worked for world-class companies, you know, WCW, WWF, UWF, ECW, companies that are known around the world. Uh, and, you know, didn't just go there like a lot of the guys. Hey, did you see the girl in the third row? Uh, I might have, I might not have, but I was paying more attention to why did the camera shoot it from that angle? How is the promoter, whether or the booker, whether that's Dusty or, or or Paul or or Bill Watts or whoever, how are they, you know, getting this message out? In other words, how are they marketing this storyline? Uh, I paid attention to all that, I, and and I really soaked all that in. So I'm looking forward to bringing that to somebody at some place at some time that won't be in the ring. And honestly, uh, you know, I I I really think it's time for me to move past the wrestling business. I'll forever love the wrestling business. But, again, I don't want the same challenge that I've had for the last 35-plus years. I want a new challenge lit under my ass, and I want to bring that to the table. And, and, and in a larger sense, I want to show the world that a lot of these guys and women in our business bring an awful lot to the table more than just what they can do in the ring. Uh, you know, it's so oftentimes, one of, the, one of the things that really pisses me off to no end is when, you know, somebody looks at you like with that hairy eyeball, like, oh, you're one of those guys that yells and screams on TV. No, I was the guy that drew millions, tens of millions of dollars in my career around the planet. You know, that acumen that I amassed during that career where I drew money everywhere I was ever booked uh, from the time after being a kid in the business. You know, to bring that kind of uh, amount of experience to the table, to be able to apply it to company A, B, C, X, Y, Z. I think there's an awful lot there to be said, and I think too often people look at professional wrestling, and oftentimes with with right, well, it's just a bunch of guys that throw each other around or women that throw each other around and yell and scream. But if you go back and you look at the people that were eloquent at doing it, uh, and you've, you've rubbed elbows with a lot of guys in the business, and you see what kind of, you know, and having been a small business owner yourself, you see that some of these guys, not all, but some of these men and women come with an awful lot of business experience that they may or themselves may not know they have. Final note on this. It always was curious to me. Why is a booker called a booker and not a general manager? Why is an agent called an agent and not a, uh, uh, you know, human resources or whatever? The, the different nomenclature that's used in the different, in, in the different fields. And it's my belief that wrestling did that to protect itself. 
that a guy like Shane Douglas wouldn't be able to seamlessly walk away from wrestling and go get a job because he's been a booker, actually a general manager, uh, or whatever. You know, and I think that there's a real self-serving reason that wrestling did that, and it wasn't to the benefit of the wrestler. Well, that's a very interesting take on it, and I hope to see you in the ring as many times as I possibly can. I plan on going to uh, Cocoa Beach when you're there February 21st. I'm going to uh, to make the drive down and be a part of the uh, Atomic Revolutionary wrestling show. It's going to be pretty awesome. Well, you know, here, here's the thing: is like you know, any match could be my last match. It just depends on you know when I'm ready to walk away. You know, I, I've always made it a, a point to point out to whoever books me. You know, if we make the deal and and I give you my word, I'll be there. You can you can count on my word. I, I take that very seriously. I, I'm like a lot of people in the world today that think that well, yeah, we didn't get it in writing, so sort of wiggle room there. No, your word. My 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 parents told me my word is my bond, and my dad taught me he used to beat me over the head with this. You know, said so when you when you're dead and gone, and they put you in the ground, nobody's going to say you know he was a good wrestler. Nobody's going to say he had a lot of money. Nobody's going to say any of those things. But they're going to say you were a good man that could be trusted, or you weren't. You know, as corny as it might sound, I take that very seriously. I take my reputation very seriously. And I can attest to that. You are good on your word every single time. And that's really impressive because a lot of people just aren't. Well, in our business, you know, it's, it's been downgraded, right? Like in our business, well, if I give you my word and don't show up, I'll just give you some excuse. And that's okay. You know, I've heard people say, well, I've been lied to. So why isn't it okay for me to lie to somebody else? Well, you know, if you're really having that discussion with yourself, you need to have a real discussion with the guy in the mirror because it doesn't matter how, how shitty you've been treated by somebody else. It's a question, again, of your word. When you're putting you in the ground, are people going to say you were a good man or you were an asshole? All right, well, that does it for this week's episode of Franchise with Shane Douglas. We got another Interrogate the Franchise under our belt. That's three Interrogate the Franchises. The franchisees always come with great questions, and it makes for a really great episode. Before I let you go, though, I need to talk about the biggest news story in wrestling right now, and I'm wondering if you've heard it. What's that, Jeff Repstein kill himself? Uh, No, no, that was last (laughs) week. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> this uh, this story actually ties in with a couple episodes ago. We talked about Hardcore Heaven 97, and you told a story about Paul Heyman getting an offer from Showtime to bring ECW to Showtime. And Correct. very interesting, now this week we get the big news story that MLW, Mr. Court Bauer, that you know very well, has been offered... Yeah. Uh, a deal with Showtime is what the rumor is, at least, and that ML- MLW may be coming to Showtime in the very near future. Interesting. Well, look, we, we've seen across the board an upswing in promotions and, you know, different products being given out there. And, you know, there is a massive audience out there that's completely been untapped. And to bring it to the masses, you know, to bring them the product that they're going to want to tune into each week. There is an unbelievable inertia right now to bring the, the sport of professional wrestling back that doesn't look like WWE. Uh, you know, if you want that brand, there's plenty of that to watch on TV. But there are so many fans out there that are not tuning into that, that, you know, the, the, to me, it's like a billboard, like, you know, mail pouch on the side of a advertisement on the side of a barn, right? It's so damn painfully obvious 
The question will be, will they deliver to the fans what they're looking for? Uh, if MLW gets that break, I hope they, they, they understand that and deliver it because there is a massive audience. Again, without boring the crowd, with the audience, the listeners with the numbers, there is a, a massive audience in the tens of millions that used to watch wrestling that don't watch sports entertainment anymore. You know, MLW, in my opinion, needs to come with a very adult product for uh, for Showtime. I think that, that would be really awesome, and I, I hope that MLW does great with it because, honestly, when it comes to storylines, MLW is on point. So I, I just see that getting even better when they go to Showtime, and, and I hope the best for them. Well, look, I mean, if you want a PG-rated show, you can find plenty of that on television right now, right, and online. You know, so what's the one audience that's being overlooked or ignored would be the 18 to 49 male that, that, that is probably one of the top demographics in advertisement. So why nobody is, is, is keying on that seems sort of strange to me. But again, you know, it's, I, I understand that I've been in the forest long enough and I can see the forest through the trees. But, you know, this, this ain't rocket science. And, you know, it's pretty easy to sit back and look at it. And, again, how many times we've talked about on this show of what separates product A from product B, match A from match B from match C. Uh, there's plenty of the sports entertainment stuff online and on television. Be the uncola. You know, there, there's plenty of Coca-Cola out there and there's plenty of, plenty of dark-flavored Dr. Peppers and all the rest of it. Be the seven up and find your audience and make a shitload of money. I couldn't agree more. And uh, I am super excited because we are headed to Bash at the Beach, AEW Bash at the Beach on the 15th. And it is going to be super exciting, sponsored by Stephen P. New. And we are going out there. And my biggest question is Will AEW acknowledge the franchise when you're sitting front row? <laughs> Right there. I, I'm thinking that they will. I'll be curious to see, right? I mean, it, to me, it, 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 it's really not a question that I'm pondering because my biggest concern is that we give uh, the listeners a franchise, the, 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 the winners of the contest. And, and to be fair, Stephen P. News you know, got a pretty penny wrapped up into this whole contest. Uh, you know, my biggest concern is giving them all their money's worth and giving them an experience that they'll remember. So, you know, the rest of it is all like icing on the cake to me and but looking forward to it again i, I want to finish folks saying what i said earlier i want to go next wednesday and i want to have my socks blown off i i, I want to see a goddamn knockdown drag out wrestling show that i'm i'm talking about for weeks afterwards on the podcast question remains to be seeing the, the, the question remains to be answered is will we get that or will we get something else well, either way, we'll be talking about it next week right here on Franchise with Shane Douglas. It's going to be all about AEW Bash at the Beach, our time, what we did, what we seen, and what you thought. And I cannot wait to do that episode because then we'll have already had the experience and it'll be in the memory banks. Um, also, franchisees, do not forget, you've got to uh, click like on the Facebook page. Also, follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Join the franchisee group on Facebook. And uh, and feel free to send us uh, any type of emails you want at franchisewithshanedouglas 
at gmail.com. We did the first episode of the bonus content of Quick Advice with Rich Quick recently, and it was fantastic, absolutely hilarious. And uh, if you've got a question for Rich Quick, make sure you send that to franchise with Shane Douglas at gmail.com. Another piece of bonus content that you might want to check out is the interview with Evan Ginsberg, the associate producer for the movie The Wrestler and the movie. 350 days. I did a really good interview with him. If you want to check that out, it is available on the franchise stream right now. And there is also the Who's Steven New Gonna Sue bonus content that is available out there on the franchise stream. He goes over his case with G Raver and Jim Cornette, which is very interesting. So if you want to check that out, it is in the franchise stream right now. And to be locked into the franchise stream, all you have to do is hit subscribe on any of our podcast platforms like Radio Public, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. There's just so many. Anchor. You can you can subscribe on so many different platforms. All you got to do is subscribe, and then you are locked in with the franchise stream, and you'll get all kinds of cool stuff. Now, Mr. Shane Douglas, we are five days away from going to AEW Bash at the Beach, and next week we're going to talk about AEW Bash at the Beach. And now it's time for you to take us home. Hey, you've had the episode this week. We are just days away from the big contest and meeting the contest winners and heading to AEW Bash on the Beach. There's only one place in America, there's only one place on the planet you can get this kind of fucking contest, and it's right here on Franchise. Tune in next week because you have no idea what's coming next. Listen to the franchise's feedback on Bash on the Beach. Do that. <laughs> or get your fucking ass franchised. <laughs> you see, to me, a franchise, it's strictly business. Well, where's... My second chance! Where's my second chance? Look a look out, you run a walk out, never fail to fuck up a good day out. You run away sometimes and I know that I never needed anybody's help to live my life like I'm running from the cops, so I'm unstoppable, I'm impossible.
This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. This is it tonight, Daddy! Some law firms talk about quickly settling your case without going to court. Other law firms focus on taking your case to trial. If you have a serious personal injury or a wrongful death claim, you need a law firm that can do either. The Law Office of Stephen New. Experienced enough to make the insurance company settle your case and pay your money early, tough enough to take them to court and make them pay if they don't.